Tonight we'll be in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to skip over chapter 36 as I mentioned this morning. Um, I'm going to come back to that on July 15th. But tonight we want to shift our focus along with the text to the life of Joseph. Chapter 36 is about Esau and it's largely um, a genealogy. And so um, that's why when we have a shorter period of time for a message like on the the, meet, the night we have our business meeting, it makes sense to do it then. So apologize for the um, the change in, in schedule here, but I hope this uh, will be a blessing to you. Genesis chapter 37, and we'll look at verses 2 through 11. Everyone who has a sibling has recognized or felt at some times the battle that often goes on for their parents' approval. And there are times when it feels like your, your, your sibling gets special treatment. Maybe don't sense that as much as an adult, but certainly as a child. And the only thing worse than seeing that special treatment in someone else is, is, uh, is that that sibling actually recognizes it and uses it to his or her advantage. I grew up with five brothers and two sisters, and the first seven of us spanned nine years. So we were all very close in age, and you wouldn't expect a whole lot of sibling rivalries there, right? Well, there were. Um, my youngest brother, Jackie, was especially keen at getting my younger brother, Scott, in trouble. And uh, Jackie would often be the instigator. He would be the one who'd start all the fights, and then as soon as he would get punched by Scott, he would go and tell Mom, and Scott would be the one getting in trouble. And it would, see, it would almost be inevitable. This is always the way it would happen. Scott, Jackie would start it, Scott would respond, and Jackie would tell, and, and Scott would get in trouble. And, and uh, part of that, Scott and I felt that he got a little bit of special favor because he was smaller, he was the youngest son, and, uh, and maybe even more of a peacemaker than, than the rest of us. He was less combative and so on. And so he recognized the somewhat of a special favor that he received from my parents, and he used it to his advantage. Well, Joseph here in chapter 37 is the object of his father's favor. In fact, we're going to see that his father loves Joseph more than all of the rest of his brothers. And not only does Joseph know that, but he, he seems to use it a little bit to his advantage. And at the end of our passage tonight, we will not see any action carried out by Joseph's brothers. That will come next time, chapter 37, verses 12 through 36. But this passage here, verses 2 through 11, really provide the setting for the drama that's going to take place, we'll see in two weeks, where his brothers sell him into slavery. I mean, they're actually set on killing him if it were not for Reuben, who says, no, you're not killing him. And he probably wouldn't have been sold into slavery if, if Reuben had been there when they did sell him. Because when Reuben comes back, he's ready to release him from the pit and he finds out he's gone. He's, he's distraught. He's like, how am I going to go back to my father? How, what am I going to say? I, I certainly are, am going to be held responsible. But they do it. And, um, and, uh, and so this really provides a setting that... Joseph really incites their anger even more with the way that he speaks to his brothers, the way that his father treats him, and so on. And that's all uh, shown for us here in the first 
uh, several verses of chapter 37. So let me read our passage. Chapter 37, verse 1. I'm actually going to preach that when we look at chapter 36. So we'll start in verse 2. And notice this marks off a new section in the book of Genesis. These are the records of the generation of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him hate a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please, listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. In this passage, we're going to see that we must be faithful to God no matter how difficult or no matter how seemingly insignificant our task, we're responsible to be faithful no matter how difficult, that is, with with all the pressure around us, the opposition, the faithlessness around us, and the seemingly insignificant task that we have at hand. We are required to be faithful. And I think Joseph is a positive example for that here. Perhaps he could have handled this better. Perhaps he, he could have handled it differently, but, but overall we have to look at Joseph and, and commend him for his faithfulness. I said that this section starts a new section, or this verse, chapter 37, verse 2, starts a new section. In fact, it starts the final section of the book of Genesis. And uh, let me just take you through um, the book. So go back to chapter 1, and I'll show you how, how, these, how each section is marked off. And basically the way Moses sets it up is by um, showing the records of the generations of. So he's talking about um, events that happened in the life of a certain person. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God. So here we could say this is the record of the generations of creation or the record of creation. That's the very first um, record that we have. Then chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account or the record of of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Okay, so we have creation in the beginning, 1-1, one, one, and then chapter 2, verse 4, what happened to creation? What happened to it? Well, then we skip to chapter 5, and now you have these markers that are clearly 
breaking sections apart or, or starting new sections. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of... Okay, now we have our first person, Adam. Okay, then what you have from chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 8, is the record of Adam. And then uh, look at chapter 6, verse um, verse 9. Excuse me. Yeah, it is through verse 8. So verse 9 starts the next section. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Okay, so then it talks about Noah and his story. In chapter 10, verse 1, Noah's family. Um, chapter 11, verse 10, Shem's descendants, that is, Noah's, Noah's son of promise, really. And then you have the start of, turn to chapter 11, verse 27, you have the start of the Israelite race. Okay, the records of the generations of Terah. Terah is the father of whom? Remember? Abraham, right? So you have this, this, rec- this genesis of God's people. So first you have the genesis of all things, creation, Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, so on. And then you move into the genesis of God's people, the beginning of God's people with uh, Abraham. So that really gives the account of Abraham and Isaac. And then the, Moses flips back and forth between non-chosen son, chosen son. So what he's going to do, look look at uh, chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Verse 12. These are the records of the generation of... Here's non-chosen son, Ishmael. And skip down to verse 19. These are the records of the generation of the chosen son, Isaac. And of course, he gets more... He gets a lot more... Um, writing about him. That goes all the way to chapter 35. And and then Moses does the same thing with Esau and Jacob. In chapter 36, verse 1, you can turn back to our passage now. Chapter 36, verse 1, non-chosen son, Esau. And he only gets one chapter. Then chapter 37, verse 1, here's the, the records of the generation of Jacob. And this is really a story. We've already learned a lot about Jacob. And Jacob's actually going to move to the background primarily in the rest of this book. This is really a story about Joseph. But but it's uh, credited to Jacob's line. And uh, so really you have the, the um, events of Joseph's life here, the chosen son of Jacob. And this section, beginning in chapter 37, verse 2, going all the way to the end of the book, really helps to tell the readers, especially the original readers, how in the world did Israel end up in slavery in Egypt. How in the world did that happen? Well, this is the answer to it. Joseph goes on ahead of the people of Israel, the, the, the sons of Israel, we could say. He goes on ahead to prepare the way by God and His grace and is able to lead uh, his, his family to Egypt to be protected. Well, let's get to the, uh, the story, the event that we're looking at here. After the record of the generations of Jacob in verse 2, it says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Haven't heard much about Joseph. Uh, We've heard about his birth and how excited Jacob was when Rachel finally did give birth. How excited Rachel was. 
but I haven't heard a whole lot about him yet. And so now we're reintroduced to him now that he's a teenager, 17 years old, and he has this conflict with his brothers. Initially, it's just with a set of his brothers. In fact, it's only four of them. You see that in the text there? The sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Okay, so that's Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Those four brothers are the ones that he has the initial conflict with. And the conflict has to do with this bad report at the end of verse 2. Now, it's not clear what this bad report was, or it's not. it's also not clear whether the brothers even knew about it. So he could have just simply went back and told his father what was going on, and um, and they may not have known. But it was clear. What, what is clear is that Joseph is more committed to being faithful to his father than earning the approval of his brothers. Do you, do you understand that? It was not in Joseph's best interest to turn his brothers in, to, to give a bad report of his brothers. If he wanted to stay in favor, if he wanted to be at peace, with his brothers, he would not have given the bad report. But he, he was more committed, even at a young age, to faithfulness. He wanted to make sure that he was doing what was right. And so, at the very outset of our introduction to this young man, we see that he is committed to faithfulness while they are com- not committed to, to, uh, to faithfulness and good living. So, faithfulness, as you probably have experienced, may bring special favor. When we do what is right, let's say, at our work or at our home, then that often brings special favor from our parents or our boss or or whomever. And notice the special favor that Joseph receives in verse 3. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. The specific reason given for why Jacob loved Joseph so much more than his other brothers was because he was the son of his old age. Now, literally, the phrase there, son of his old age, in the middle of the verse, is son of old age. Okay, So that actually could be referring to Joseph. And if it were that Joseph was the son of old age. We know he's 17, so what it would be saying there is that Joseph is acting maturely. He's, he's uh, like we say, he's, he's well beyond his years. Right? He's very mature for his age. That, that could be what the text is saying. Um, but it more likely has to do with the fact that Joseph was the closest to his father in his father's old age. In other words... The reason Jacob loved Joseph so much was because he was the special son to Jacob in his old age. That he had a special relationship with him. And so because Joseph was special to him, what does his father do for him? The end of the verse. He makes him a very colored, or as we often say, a coat of many colors. And this showed that Jacob had chosen Joseph. This is not just a, here's a birthday gift for you. Okay, I hope you really like it. This is a special coat that was normally only worn by royalty. In fact, this same word, 
for very colored tunic, same same phrase, is used in Second Samuel chapter thirteen, verse eighteen, where the daughters of royalty are wearing a coat of many colors, a very colored tunic. And so the fact that Joseph receives this suggests that Jacob sees something in Joseph that his brothers don't see. That he is special, that he is chosen by this father. Well, this would only further incite his brothers to more hatred. When they see him wearing this special coat of his, oh, you get such special treatment from your father. And so Jacob or Joseph receives a special favor. And special favor, when we receive special favor, it often leads to us being hated by those who are faithless. Look at verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him. And they could not speak to him on friendly terms. They knew what was going on. And by the way, this is not the first time they saw the special favor that Jacob had for him. Turn back to chapter 33. Remember when Jacob was being approached by Esau and his 400 men? They noticed where they were placed in line. They noticed where they were placed in line, where Joseph was. Verse 1, chapter 33, Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, you guys be sacrificed first. Now, you'll be down the front lines of battle. If they kill somebody, they can kill you. Then we'll get out of here. Then he put Leah and her children next, and Rachel, this is before Benjamin, Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, God obviously protected Jacob's family during this time. We know that. But what was clear to the rest of Jacob's brothers, or Joseph's brothers, that Joseph was specially treated by Jacob. At that time, Joseph was likely only six years old, but certainly they would have been teenagers at that time and and would not have forgotten that. Now they see this coat of many colors that's been given to him. And, And if you think about it, his brothers were being a bit irrational. I mean, did Joseph do anything to make his father give him a coat of many colors, to to put him in the back of the line when it came to the battle. Joseph didn't do anything special. He was just born at a different time from a different, different mother. So actually, who should they have been mad at? Should have been mad at their father. But this is often the way that it happens. And it goes in life that the hatred that people have towards you may not necessarily be directed at you. They may be frustrated because of someone else and their actions, but they're taking it out on you. And that's exactly what happens here with Joseph. The result of their hatred, and I think this um, th- this really is highlighted when we get to the next part of the story, but... The end of verse 4 says they could not, they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Look at how much they hated him, verse 19. Can you skip down to there with me, verse 19? When they saw him come in, verse 18, verse 19, they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we'll say, A wild beast devoured him. 
Then let us see what will become of his dreams. I mean, can you, can you sense the sibling rivalry here? They hated him. Particularly because of the special favor that, they, that he had received from his father. So, we must be faithful to God in the midst of faithfulness. No matter how wicked the people are acting around us, our responsibility is to continue to be faithful. Okay, We're not trying to appease all these people around us. We're ultimately trying to appease God or, or please God. And, and that's the most important thing. That's the way Joseph is in verses 1-4. through four. Now, if God is going to reward us, secondly, if God is going to reward us with great responsibilities, we first must be faithful in the little responsibilities that we have now. Verses 5-11. through If God's going to reward us with great responsibilities, we first must be faithful in the little responsibilities we have now. As you know, Joseph, beginning in chapter 41, is going to be moved to a great position of responsibility. What is that position? What is it? A second in command over all of Egypt, and I would actually suggest over the entire world, because during that seven-year famine... What happens to the rest of the world? They don't have any food either, so they have to come to Egypt. And what does Joseph wisely do? First, he has them give them give Egypt all of their resources. You want some food? Bring me your sheep. Bring me your, your money. I'll take it in exchange for food. And then when they run out of that, what happens? Do you remember? Okay, he takes their land. said, all right, I'm going to have a portion of your land. That means... Every time that you farm your land, you're going to send some back to Egypt. He taxes the entire world, basically. And which makes Egypt a, an empire, really. So Joseph is second in command. But before he can get there, if God's going to make him, give him that great responsibility, he has to be faithful in the little responsibility he has now. And this is just within his own little family. The point we see here is that those who are faithful in much are first faithful in little. And in these dreams that are recorded in verses 5-11, through 11, we get a glimpse of Jacob's great prominence. Alright, first, the dream number 1, verses 5-8. through 8. Joseph rises to prominence over his brothers. He begins by telling his brothers the dream. And Moses gives us, the re- gives us the result of telling the dreams to his brother before he actually tells what the content of the dream is. Look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, see, he doesn't tell us any details about it yet, they hated him even more. tells us the outcome first. Here's what happens when Joseph tells the dream. Once the dream is told, his brothers understand the implications, and verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Here's the content, verses 6 and 7. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Sheaves, um, you've probably seen these on people's porch porches around Thanksgiving time. Okay, it's basically huge stalks of, of wheat that are bundled together. This is, 
another word for bundle, sheaf, a sheaf. So wheat farmers would gather these wheat stalks into bundle, bundles or sheaves. And Joseph's dreams reports that, that my bundle was laying down on the ground and all of a sudden it stands up erect. And then your sheaves, your 11 sheave bundles came around me and you all started bowing down to me. And his brothers respond knowing exactly what Joseph is talking about. They, they understand the implication of it without him having to explain it. Verse 8, Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? And they hated him even more. See that phrase that keeps getting repeated? Verse 4, They hated him. Verse 5, They hated him even more. Verse 8, They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they ask the question, we, we know exactly what you're saying here, Joseph. You mean to tell us that you're going to be our leader and we're going to bow down to you? You see how ridiculous that is? You being the second youngest in our family. It would be one thing if Reuben had that dream, but, but you, Joseph? Joseph dream, dreams about being prominent over his brothers. And then verses 9 through 11, two more characters are added. It's not just his brothers who bow down to him here, but I want you to notice who else bows down. First, he tells his brothers the dream in verse 9. See that? Now he still had another dream and he related it to his brothers. And then he tells his father, verse 10. He related it to his father and to his brothers. Okay, we get the content pretty much right away. Second part of verse 9. Lo, I have still had... Another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Okay, so the eleven stars are likely referring to whom? His eleven brothers, right? Okay, that's pretty easy. But who are the sun and the moon? Who is Joseph talking about? How could the sun and moon bow down to him as well? Well, Jacob, I think, understands the implication. Notice in verse 10, he related to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother's mother and your brothers actually come to bow our, ourselves down before you to the ground? So who do you think the sun and the moon refer to? Jacob and one of his three wives that are still remaining. Okay, so the sun is probably referring to Jacob. I think that's pretty clear. The moon, obviously, is Joseph's mother. But you remember, Joseph's mother is dead, Rachel, at this point. And so this is probably referring to, we could say, his adopted mother or maybe the, the one that he now recognizes as his mother, which would make sense to be Leah, but it could have been one of, one of the, uh, probably could have been Rachel's maid, I guess we could say. But here's the point. Okay, Jacob, Jacob says to Joseph, are you telling me that I and your mother are going to bow down to you? And so initially when Jacob hears it, he's kind of, Surprised? Are you kidding me? I'm going to bow down to you? That doesn't work in our culture, Jake, Joseph. But the point is clear from the dreams that Joseph will not only rule over his brothers, but he will rule over his whole family. And there are two responses to Joseph's dream. We saw, actually, we saw one by his father, which is initially in a, rebu- a rebuke. How dare you say something like that? But it's going to change here when we get to verse 11. 
Okay, but notice the two responses in verse 11. First, his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him. They envy him. They recognized that it very well could be that his dreams were valid. In fact, I think they knew that his dreams were valid. They were legitimately from God. Why do I say that? If they were just some fantastical dreams, why would they envy him? So I think they recognized that these dreams were going to come true and that God was behind it all. And perhaps that was what charged them to want to kill him at the end of chapter 37 end up selling him into slavery. They didn't want these dreams to come true. And again, when you, when you and I are conduits of God's purposes to another person, they will often take it out on you, not God. It's hard to take our anger out on God. It's hard for our enemies to take their anger out on God. And so what do they do? They take it out on the person of God. The messenger of God. For example, if your coworker was caught stealing by you, God's just judgment would be for them to lose their job. But if you were the one who turned them in, do you think they would necessarily shake their fist at God and say, I hate you and I'm going to do everything I can to stop your purposes in this world? Not generally. Generally, what are they going to do? They're going to take it out on you because you're the one who turned them in. If it weren't for you, then they would have been fine. Our parents, when you discipline your children, the discipline is ultimately discipline that's handed down by God. You are simply a conduit of God's discipline on your children. But when your children don't see that it is from God, they often take it out on you and, and, um, and perhaps are angry at you. But what's interesting about this second dream is that his brothers miss the point. All they think about is that they're bowing down to Joseph, but what they don't recognize, and they should recognize, is that they're actually going to be rulers. Stars, in, when used in the Old Testament, would often signify rulership. If a person was a star, he was a ruler. In fact, the angels are, are often referred to as stars. And the point of the dream is that, yes, they would have to submit themselves to Joseph, but also that they would be rulers over many people. So the initial response of the sons is, obviously, they hated him with his first dream. They hated him even more, and so on. And then with this one, they are simply jealous of him because they know it's true. They know it's going to happen. Jacob's response is actually a mixed response. First, he rebukes them. Rebukes Joseph in verse 10. Do you really think we're going to bow down to you? But then, notice at the end of verse 11, I think Jacob starts to recognize what's going on here. But his father kept the saying in mind. I love how this passage ends. His father kept the saying in mind. He kept the dreams in mind. As if he tucked it into his memory so that when Joseph actually rises to a position of leadership over Egypt and the whole world, Jacob thinks back to that time when he had that dream at the age of 17. 
he recognizes that the dream was of God. Perhaps Jacob started to connect the dots now. I had dreams. I had revelations given to me from God. And now I'm seeing it in my son. My son's having a dream. And so this is of God. And the fact that I have chosen my son Joseph, given him the the royalty coat, is now confirmed in God the Father's confirmation of him. That he is going to be my son of blessing and rule. Now, we could criticize Joseph for being arrogant or at best naive. But we can't miss the point in this passage. And that is that God has chosen Joseph. God was the one who gave Joseph the dreams. That's why I say God has chosen Joseph. He's showing Joseph at a young age, you're my man. You're the one that I've chosen from from this family. Now you may be thinking, wait a second, wait a second. I had a dream last night as well. Right? Are you telling me there's something to my dreams as well? Are you saying that those are revelations from God? And here's how I would answer that question. No. No. The reason that we know that those dreams, that, uh, that, that uh, Joseph's dreams are from God is because we have the rest of the story, don't we? Chapter 42, verse 6, his brothers bow down to him when they see him for the first time. Chapter 43, verse 26, they bow down to him again. Chapter 44, verse 14, they bow down to him again. And so Joseph's dreams come true. Not in the sense that you know he has some fantasy that he wants to see happen and it comes true. It's the, the idea that God's revelation comes through. That's what I mean by dreams. And we also know that Joseph's dreams are from God because God often revealed Himself to people in dreams. He had done this to his grandfather, Abraham. He said, Abraham, you need to get up from Ur of the Chaldeans and you need to go to the land that I show you. He did that through a dream. He also gave Jacob a dream. I'm going to protect you, Jacob, while you're in Haran, Padanaram, the land of Laban. While you're there, I'm going to protect you from your father-in-law. I'm going to protect you. He even talked to Laban in his dream. Don't touch Jacob. Don't say anything good or bad to him. Remember? And here God predicts the rule of Joseph over his family. So the reason we know that these dreams are true is because they come true. God reveals Himself in dreams. And we also know because of the end of this passage, His Father kept the saying in mind. His Father recognizes there's something to this. This is not just a whim that He has or some uh, fantasy that He wants to see come to light. And the reason that I know your dreams are not divine revelations is because of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay? That is, the Scriptures have been completed. And so God no longer needs to communicate to us in supernatural ways other than by the Word through the Spirit. Okay? God doesn't need to do that, and so He's uh, stopped doing that, I would suggest, based on 1 Corinthians 13. Well, this book of Genesis has progressed to a brand new set of events, a brand new story with Joseph and his struggles. But but they're very his struggles are very similar to what we've already seen. And that is that God is going to bless his people despite the faithlessness of people around him 
and even when they're outside of the land of promise. I think it's Peter that brings this up in a sermon in the book of Acts where he says, you know, a lot of the great things that happened in the history of Israel actually happened outside of Israel. Do you recognize that? Outside of the land. We don't have to be in the land to be a part of God's favor. Obviously, that's a great blessing to be a part of the land, but, but God still blesses His people outside the land. And what we should learn from this consistent truth is that even when God's promises are not fulfilled in our lives fully, receiving the land for them, God is still there. And God is still on our side. And the hero of this story, as we go through this, will become more, more clear, is God, not Joseph. His dreams show that, that He is a man who is chosen by God, not by man. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Because what I want you to see is the type of people that God uses are those who are faithful. Luke chapter 16. Verse 1. The type of people that God uses are those who are faithful. Those who are faithful, even when it's difficult, when Joseph's brothers were, were hating him and envying him, he was still faithful. And Joseph was faithful even in the most insignificant of things. In his little family that didn't amount to much. And when God saw that faithfulness in his little, then he was able to give him even greater things. The type of people... God uses are those who are faithful. David Crabb put it, put it this way, Pastor David Crabb on Wednesday night. God uses those who recognize that they are needy and are looking to Jesus for strength. That's the type of people God uses. Those who are needy and who are looking to Jesus. God uses the faithful. And if God is going to use you to be faithful in great things, either in this church or in some great ministry, or in your neighborhood, or at your work, or in your family, wherever it is, if God's going to want, He's going to use you to be faithful in great things, then you have to be faithful in little first. Look at verse 1. Now, He was also saying, that is Jesus, to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manger, uh, excuse me, a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. All right, now look up here. How do you think the master is going to respond to a manager who doesn't get all of what is owed to the owner? How do you think? You may know the end of the story, but how would you expect the owner to respond? You'd expect him to be angry. How dare you cut 50 measures of oil when I was owed 100? Notice how he does respond. Verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age 
are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Okay, so why did the Master praise him? What does the text say there in verse 8? Why did the Master praise him? He acted shrewdly. Or what's another word for shrewdly? Wisely or craftily, right? He was, he was wise with his Master's resources. Now, clearly this wasn't the best of practices because notice verse 8, it says, the unrighteous manager, Jesus calls him, Certainly the master would have liked to have received the full amount, but the point of the parable is that he liked what the servant did here. Now, notice the application for us. Second part of verse 8. For the sons of this age are more shrewd, there's that word, shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, Let's just clear up one thing before we move on to what this means for us. Is Jesus saying that he likes conniving business practices? Okay, which is what's going on here? No. Rather, the point is, D.A. Carson, I think, puts it best. He says the servant manager used the resources that were under his control to prepare for his future. And so here's the point for us. If he, being an unrighteous manager, used his resources to prepare for his future. What was he trying to prepare his future for? When I get fired from this owner, I want to be in good graces with whom? My vendors. Okay, the people that have owed my master money. So he's preparing for his future and he's using the resources that he has under his control. So here's the point. How much more should we as sons of light, verse 8, use the resources that are under our control to prepare for our future. How much more should we use the resources under our control to prepare for our future? I'm not talking about investing your finances. That may be a a legitimate application. What I'm talking about is the resources that God has given you, the the abilities, the talents, the circles of, of relationships that you currently have, How are you using them to prepare for your eternal future? Are you investing anything in heaven right now? My pastor, Pastor Doran, would often tell us at our church that we can't take our resources with us and we die, we leave it all here, but we can send it on ahead. What he meant by that is we can use the current resources that we have to build up for ourselves what Jesus called treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves don't break in and steal. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The point of this parable is not that we can buy heaven or we can buy God's favor, but rather that we are irresponsible managers of God's resources if we are not using what He's given us to plan for our eternal future. And the point becomes clearer as we continue on in this passage. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? 
If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Those who are faithful on the earth with the little responsibilities that they've been given will be given greater responsibilities in heaven and for all of eternity. So let me ask you, do you have aspirations of doing great things for God eternally? That is, in heaven, do you have aspirations for doing great works for God in heaven and for all of eternity? What about on this earth? Do you have great aspirations? Do you want to do great things for God? Maybe reach a lot of people for Christ. Maybe be a pastor or a missionary. Maybe have a prosperous business so you can help adequately support the work of Christ in an area. Do you have aspirations to do great things for God? Maybe it's aspirations of, of simply raising godly children. Maybe it's to be a leader in the church or teach a Sunday school class. Those are all great desires. And I don't want to to squelch those desires. But what I do want you to think about is is what you're doing with the resources that you have now. Now, You may want to do all those great things eternally and even in the near future. But what are you doing now with the resources that God has given you? What are you doing with the limited resources that you have right now? Maybe you only have... I don't have a whole Sunday school class to teach, but I've got a, a few people that I have that, that I have influence over. What are you doing with that? Are you squandering it? What are you doing with the money that God has entrusted to you this year? Okay, maybe you want to have a prosperous business so that I can help adequately support God's work, but what about the money God's given to you now? Reminds me of the story that my pastor growing up used to tell of the the pastor who went to a farmer's house and said, hey, if, if you had a hundred chickens, would you give 50 of them to God? Oh, you know I would, pastor. I would certainly give 50 chickens to God. Well, what about if you had 40 cows? Would you give 20 cows to God if you had 40? Oh, if I had 40 cows, I'd give 20 for sure. Well, farmer, what if you had two pigs? Would you give one of them to God? And the farmer says, now, Pastor, you know I have two pigs. I can't answer that question. You see, when when we think of all these bigger and better resources that we will have, and if we had all this responsibility, we'd be so much more faithful. We'd pray for people more. We'd care for them more. We'd give more. But here's the point. What are we doing with what we have now? Because those who are faithful and little are entrusted with much. Those who are faithful in little are entrusted with much. And Joseph was a great example of that. All throughout his life, he was mistreated and scorned at, forgotten, and yet God hadn't forgotten him. And I can tell you, Christian, that God hasn't forgotten you. That you may feel as if your little area of responsibility is of no consequence with regard to anything that's going on in life, in this church, in the world, in eternity. That it doesn't really matter. But here's what I'm telling you tonight is that it does matter. 
Your area of responsibility matters a great deal to God, and He hasn't forgotten you. And you may not get to have great responsibility in this lifetime, but, but remember, the point of this passage is not really in this lifetime. Although that seems to be the pattern for Joseph, that he was faithful and little, and then he was given greater responsibility in his lifetime. But actually the point of this passage, Luke 16, is that when you're faithful and little now, you'll get greater responsibility in the future, in eternity. And so are you storing up treasures for yourself right now? Or are you squandering what God has given to you? I think there's much we can uh, learn from the example of Joseph and the parable that Jesus gives. What are we doing with the resources that God has given to us? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's very easy to um, have aspirations of doing great things for You and to be discontent with where we are now and our little circle of relationships and responsibilities perhaps maybe want to do more and and uh, be able to have more impact on more people. But You've given us the specific area of responsibility to us for a reason. And You are not unconcerned about these people and these finances and these resources that are under our care. So we pray that you'd help us not to minimize what you have given to us, not to disparage it or to become distressed or discouraged because of perhaps the little that we see we have in comparison to others. Help us to be like Joseph, faithful in the midst of faithlessness and faithful no matter how insignificant. And we pray that the result would be that your promise would be fulfilled in us. You would accomplish great things through us both in this lifetime and for all of eternity. We don't know all of your plans. We don't know exactly what you're doing in each life that we have care over. But we know that you know. And we know that you have a purpose. So we trust you where we can't see. Help us to lean on you and to follow you all the way until you lead us home. May you send our Savior quickly. And may He restore all things to Yourself so that we could have the joy of, the, of being in Your eternal presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name.